Right now, I'm overthinking dogs. I mean, if I was being honest with you guys every week, I would just be like, dogs. That's what I'm overthinking. I'm always overthinking my dog. If I'm scrolling through Instagram, I'm looking at dog pictures. If you look in my camera roll, all you see is pictures of my dogs. Dogs, dogs, dogs. Okay, no, but I really do have something interesting to say. I mean, maybe. I don't know. My family and I are obsessed with 110-pound Shia Poo. His name is Mo. And my sister got him years ago as a divorce dog, I call him, because she and her husband got a divorce. She always said they'd never get a dog. And then kind of one of those, okay, well, now we'll get a dog because, you know, trying to kind of tamp down the trauma of divorce, right? So Mo gets bigger. My sister, who has a lot on her hands, she has two stepkids too, blah, blah, blah is like, okay, the kids are really involved in, in other things. I can't take care of this dog. So the dog's about two. And she asks me to take him. At this point, I knew the dog. I had a relationship with him and I liked him. So I like to say I rescued him from my sister. So I take the dog, I take Mo, and I'm in love with him. But lately, we've been having this conversation about dog cloning. Okay, we, meaning I'm the one who keeps bringing it up, and my family keeps looking at me like, are you okay? I mean, they know I'm serious. Okay, so here's the thing. Barbara Streisand cloned one of her dogs, and she famously talks about how she had this like lifelong soulmate of a dog. I can relate. And the dog passed. And she heard, and she obviously got some like DNA from the dog before because she had heard about this. The dog passed, and she at first was like, "Okay, I'm going to try to get a new dog, and then see how that works, and see like see if I feel see if I feel like I've moved on." She was heartbroken. She couldn't get over her old dog. We'll call him Muffy. I don't know what his name was. Couldn't get over Muffy. And she goes she goes through with cloning her dog. And she has now has a clone of Muffy that is her past dog. And she says it's not, you know, it's not the same exactly because Muffy has a soul. Muffy was her soulmate dog and he had a soul. But it is some solace to see, you know, the body of Muffy and the looks of Muffy running around every day still. So I, uh, and it was like $30,000. It's like $30,000 to clone a dog. So I really need this podcast to work out. So I'm always telling my family, I'm going to clone Mo. I am going to clone the dog because I'm not going to, I'm not going to be all right. I'm not going to be all right when something happens to him. And they are in the camp of a, you're crazy and be that it's not the same that you it it would just be like it would just be like having a taxidermy version of your pet when the real soul is gone and i know that because i look in his little eyes and i know he has a soul and i know he's my little man but um just that's what i've been overthinking is cloning my dog just so you know what level of weirdo you're listening to but i also want to know what you guys what your thoughts are if if you're not a dog person, if you are like dogs sit in the backyard, then you definitely think I'm a psycho. If you are a dog person, then it might be something you're overthinking. You might be like, I would consider it. 
Or you might think, no, it's weird because it's not really them. I don't know. I don't know. It's something I overthink. It is. It's something I overthink like I may, I might, I could possibly do one day. Kind of like how you possibly think you could get a facelift one day, you know, like I could get a lower facelift one day. So one day you might see me with a cloned dog and a really pulled back face. So I want you to know what's out there for me. Not our subject for the day as usual, just a little bit of a rant. I have two intro non-related things today. Sorry. Been a lot of overthinking lately. So I'm really into football right now, as I know we all are. Thank you, Taylor Swift. That's not true. I'm a Kansas City girl. So if you're a Kansas City girl, you've been into football since, I don't know, Patrick Mahomes came on. It's always fun to be into a winning team and definitely have been into football at least the past four years. So it's so fun to watch the Kansas City Chiefs if you're a KC girl. If you, we have a lot of Chiefs fans that just kind of like live around the country, which is fun to see. This is not a Taylor and Travis thought, because I know I have a lot of Taylor and Travis thoughts. This is not about them. This is about the NFL. Um, So I'm really into football right now, really into it. KC is like my number one team. Love them. I'm also into the Dolphins. I'm into the Dolphins, and I'll tell you why. Because I watch Hard Knocks on HBO, which... And so I'm into the like little millennial coach. I didn't mean to call him little. I'm into the millennial coach. He's like almost 40. I love Tua Tagovailoa. He seems like this is how girls watch football, you guys. Here's a little clue. Here's how girls watch football. I'm into Tua Tagovailoa because he seems like the sweetest guy. Like do guy, is that how guys watch football? Aaron Andrews, who I love. I think we should start having her do some backstory just for the ladies because Here's what we love as ladies, and I'm sorry to generalize. That's what I do on this podcast, too. I generalize the hell out of us, okay? And I know it's not fair, and I know it's not cool, and I know it's not PC. But me, I'll just say this. Me as a woman, I love a backstory. I love a story, which is something I talk about a lot on this podcast. We love stories. We buy into stories. So I would love it if Aaron Andrews could just give us a little bit of backstory every time they called him. Like, Tua Tugavailoa just scored a touchdown, and he's so cute with his kids. Like, Mike McDaniel really aligned the offense this week, and he's a recovering alcoholic. Like, I love that kind of stuff. Like, I think backstory is what could really push women over the edge. Like Taylor started it, but it could really push women over the edge of this whole NFL thing because we love stories. I love a story. I love a sports documentary. I will watch a sports documentary on a on a Brazilian weightlifter. I don't care. I don't care how out of my realm it is, how out, how far from my field of interests. I will watch it and I will be bought it. I will be bought in and crying at the end. But I talk about the power of story a lot. And what story are you creating about yourself? Create a hero narrative. Create a hero narrative the same way the NFL does, right? Um, They can turn a hero narrative out of anything. 
So now the topic of the day, we're going to get into self-doubt, imposter syndrome, and the stories we create. Ready? Let's overthink it. Reality is created by the stories we believe, believe the right story. So we're going to get into stories a little bit later, but stories are so powerful and you see that everywhere, right? You, if you're a creative person, you hear that all the time. So what story are you telling yourself about what you want, about what you can do? Make it a good story. Make your life a good story. And that has a lot to do with self-doubt and how we see ourselves. Let's talk a little bit more about self-doubt. Early in my career, and my career is advertising, it is copywriting, creative. I come up with the things. I write the things. And early in my career, I was plagued by self-doubt. Plagued. I was constantly confused and constantly feeling like the stupidest person in the world who maybe just shouldn't work in the workforce. Like maybe I should go out to a farm and sit there and, and weave a blanket. Like I was like a woman from the 1800s. Like I just was like, maybe this isn't for me. I don't know what is wrong with me. I literally felt that way for the for at least the first year. So I'm always really sensitive. Like when I see a new person walk into the office and they're like, they're fresh out of college. I'm like, oh, baby bird. Oh, baby bird, come here. I thought maybe an office wasn't even for me. Maybe I wasn't safe to be in an office. I graduated from college, moved to the big city, and I'm plagued by self-doubt. The outside world has a new pace and even its own lingo. From EOD to R&D, I feel lost, left behind, and I don't think I'll ever find my way. There's no sexy Devil Wears Prada montage where I learned to collate copies with a wink, send a fax without failing, and learn to blend my blush properly. I keep smiling, and eventually, with the help of some other kind colleagues, I put together a portfolio of my creative work and get a job as a copywriter. So this is from my book, Overthinking in Your Underwear. So as a copywriter, things didn't get all that much better for me. Uh, people would kind of tell me that I had talent and I was good with the word, but still plagued by self-doubt. And something else came up for me, imposter syndrome. So when we talk about self-doubt, there's no nastier little liar than imposter syndrome. The term imposter syndrome or imposter phenomenon was, an origi was originated by Dr. Suzanne Imes and Dr. Pauline Rose Clance in their 1978 article, The Imposter Phenomenon in High Achieving Women. Dynamics and Therapeutic Intervention. Since Imes and Clance's publication, the definition of imposter syndrome has broadened to include almost everyone, not only women. Imposter syndrome wants to upend our self-worth and replace it with incessant insecurity. To get clinical, imposter syndrome is a common phenomenon where a person adopts persistent feelings of insecurity and self-doubt despite past success or in relation to their current skill set. They may be highly regarded in their field or industry, yet their success doesn't line up with their self-image. They have a blank slate mentality when it comes to their achievements, even though they nail the speech, develop the idea, or make the sale. They, prove, they must prove themselves worthy at the start of every new task. So, so 
if you've ever experienced imposter syndrome, oh, it's like it's that that definition is so true. And I felt it. I still feel it at times. I'll do something great at work and I'll come up with an idea and I'm like, oh, great. I feel really good. And then the next time a project comes up, I'm like, am I worthy of this? <laughs> Should I be here? Should I be in this room? Do I have what it takes? Even though maybe last week you did a great job. Last week you were in this. This has happened to me even recently. Last week you were in the same room and everyone was like, oh my God, this is great. We love this work. And you're like, great. Okay, awesome. And then the next project comes up and you're like, gosh, am I going to be able to do this? Am I going to be able to do this? And you're like, were you here last week? Did you see last week? Are you the same person? It's just the kind of having to prove yourself almost every time over and over. What's important to understand about imposter syndrome is that it's very common. It happens to all of us, happens to women more than men. In fact, some of the most accomplished people in the world have leaned into imposter syndrome. Sheryl Sandberg, COO, former COO of Meta, Facebook, talks about it in her book, Lean In. When something pushes beyond your perimeter, imposter syndrome will make an appearance asking, are you qualified? Who cares what you think? Are you serious with that outfit? When you set a goal, let self-doubt be your guide. Stretch your neck, push past it. It's there to show us our edges and help us decide if we want to live within the framework we've built or construct something totally new. When I was younger, I used to sit in these rooms and brainstorms. And I would think everyone with there was smarter than me. And I could almost like not speak because I was so nervous and plagued with self-doubt and plagued with imposter syndrome. And one day it hit me. No one knows what they're doing. All these people that are older than me and perceived smarter than me. And I've sat there for years holding my tongue. No one knows what they're doing. And I mean that with all due respect. Everyone is sitting there looking around the room, hoping that someone solves the problem, comes up with an idea so we can all leave and go get frozen yogurt. Everyone's looking around, hoping we all solve the problem or come up with the idea together. So speak your mind, say something, say anything. Even if it's the wrong thing, maybe it leads to something else that someone builds on. People remember your effort more than your errors. They'll leave the room and they'll go, oh, so-and-so had a lot of ideas, even if they weren't good ones. You had a lot of ideas. You spoke a lot. You raised up questions. You asked things. Just use your voice. Don't be afraid to be wrong. I sat through many, I sat through my early years many times, quiet and silenced by imposter syndrome. So before we get to those stories, I'm going to talk about one more thing, and that's criticism. Criticism or feedback is part of every job, and it can obviously affect your self-doubt, your self-worth. As a person in advertising, criticism, feedback is baked into the job description to a brown, crispy glaze. It's part of everyday life, part of every job, part of almost every interaction is someone telling you to change something, telling you, I like it, but... It's good, but it's almost there, but that could work, but what if we, but I wonder if, because long ago, 
what I realized was my job is the idea. My job is the presentation. It's the idea, whether it's to the account team or the client or whomever, that's my job. They give me an assignment, come up with the idea for X, Y, Z. I come up with the idea. What they do with it is their business. What they do with it is their business. And if they want to change it and morph it and make it into something completely different, that's their business. What I was saying about that is in jobs, it's hard to get away from feedback or even criticism, if you want to call it that. But the majority of criticism or feedback isn't about us, yet we absorb the onslaught as if it's ours alone. I'm not suggesting you rationalize away every piece of negative feedback. I'm just saying don't bear the brunt of other people's opinion or praise. Whether it's advertising or an art piece or you're a CPA who does numbery tax things, be proud of your effort and trust your talent. In our loud and chaotic world, every voice cannot matter. Choose who gets your attention. Maybe it's a mentor, maybe it's a mentor or a small group of friends and family. Understand the rest is just noise and shut it off. In my advertising job, the paycheck requires you nod, smile, and apply feedback without flinching. What you're not required to do is take it personally. So that is for my book, Overthinking in Your Underwear. I talk about self-doubt. I also talk about the reality we create and believing and creating a reality you want to live in. It doesn't mean being delusional. You are creating your reality with everything you do. I say this in the book, but when I first kind of read that concept of like, we create our reality, I was like, what a bunch of wackery. What a bunch of black mirror wackery. And it's actually not. It's totally straightforward. And when someone says it to you, you're like, I do create my reality. And what am I living in? Your thoughts create your emotions. Your emotions create your environment. Your environment is your reality. You are creating your reality. To go even further, your behaviors. Are you drinking? Are you exercising? Are you getting enough sleep? They affect your thoughts and your mind, which then... (laughs) affect all the other stuff we just ran through. So you are in control. You are in control. And I know, right? We're all trying to grab control in a world that we really have no control over. But don't fool yourself into thinking that you have no control because that's easier because you do. You have some control over your reality in the things that I just listed. Here's this poor, this story I tell to illuminate the, this point about we create our reality. Way back in 1983, give or take, several families, including my own, take a canoe trip to Southeast Missouri. The kind where everyone wears puffy orange life vests and glides down the river eating soggy sandwiches from a cooler. I'm about six years old at the time. And my one and only memory, besides the soggy sandwiches, is that my family's canoe flips over while going down the river. Whoosh, dunk, cold water rushing by. 
coolers bobbing up and down, people fishing us out with oars like Kate Winslet on the Titanic, the whole thing. My sister, age eight, has a similar memory, except in her version, she and I endure this early childhood trauma with another family, and my poor parents watch from the canoe. My sister and I only discussed this recently when we brought our competing memories to our mother. As we tag team our way through the family history, my mother holds up a hand as it reaches a tipping point. I can't hear anymore, she says, but wait, I'm right, right? I say, you're not right. I'm right, says my sister. It turns out we were both wrong. My sister and I enjoyed a safe trip down the river with my loving parents and watched another family flip their canoe. Whoosh, dunk, cold water rushing by, coolers bobbing up and down, people fishing them out with oars like Kate Winslet on the Titanic, the whole thing. We questioned my mom with the intensity of a prosecutor with nothing to lose. The fact that she was 36 at the time of the events was enough evidence against the memory of two girls who recently learned to tie their kids. She falters a bit on the soggy sandwiches, but I'll allow it. I wish this whole thing was about false memories, because clearly that shit is nuts, but it's not. I share this to illuminate a major maxim on our self-help canoe trip. We're the hero or the victim of our own story. Whatever you're remembering from childhood is solely your version. You're creating your reality. Be intentional. Be purposeful. Be the hero. And don't flip your boat for no reason. I love that story. Totally true. Totally happened. So you aren't an innocent bystander to the whims of your reality. Actively choose your understanding to the events around you and your emotions. Devise the life you want and be aggressive about it. It's your vision. It's your reality. And it's your choice how you see it. So Aristotle said we are what we repeatedly do. So in small bits and bites, you can replace old habits and old ways of thinking with new patterns. And in time, you won't have to overthink choosing a lighter reality. So it means to choose your story. And um, so now we're going to get into just a little bit more of that, what it means to choose your story. If you believe a story about yourself that, you know, let's, let's go back to childhood because that's where we all go, right? <laughs> if you believe a story about yourself that I am weak, I am small, I was the slowest runner in gym class, I was the stupidest person uh, in math, like I was never going to go anywhere, you know, I just, ugh, you know, I just was like a total underachiever. This is a story you heard. Maybe something, maybe some things were warranted. Maybe you were the slowest runner in gym class. Um, but these are the, this is the story that runs through your head. You had this story, right? And story, if we believe stories, they have power, but stories only have as much power insofar as they are believed, right? And that goes like, that's a very powerful PR thing too, by the way. But Definitely internal. Our stories only have so much power insofar as they are believed. So what are you telling yourself about your life, about your limitations, and what do you need to change? Do you need to completely rewrite your story? Do you need to completely rewrite it down on a piece of paper? Like, I feel like I had kind of this story. Well, I always say this one because I have... I. 
I still do, but they're, they're, they're better. I had really bad headaches growing up. I still do. I still have them. Right. But I definitely had a story of, I am sick. I am weak. I am incompetent. My family always treated me like a fragile being about to break. Not their fault at all. They're, it's because they're loving and wonderful, compassionate people. And I realized at some point that, of course, you adopt that. Of course, you adopt that story of that's who you are. And in a lot of ways, I mean, a lot of ways that, that that's who I was. Let's, let, you know, no one was doing that to me. That is who I was. And I realized I had to rewrite my story. I had to recreate my story and I had to be like, Lindsay is competent. Lindsay is strong. Lindsay is not sick. I mean, everybody has something like a headache or they have, you know, they have a back pain, whatever, get over it. Like I am strong. I am competent. I am creative. You have to rewrite your story and own your story. And if you hear any of that little stuff from your old story, no way. I'm not telling that story anymore. You know? You have power in the stories you tell yourself. It is a lot like the inner monologue, but think about think about the story that was created about you in childhood. Think about it and rewrite that story. So uh, it it's kind of goes back to my, if you listen to the seven steps for happiness of if you believe you're happy, if you believe you're going to have a good day, if you believe in positivity, believe the story. Believe the story about I'm going to be successful. I'm going to be happy. I'm going to have a good day. Like we believe the stories we tell ourselves, you know, and if you get up and say, this is going to be terrible, it's going to be terrible. You can create the stories you tell yourself that propel you forward, or you can create a story that holds you back. And it's really up to you. Thanks so much for overthinking with me this week. Until next time, wishing you all good thoughts. (laughs) 